Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in Hebrews chapter 12. We didn't finish that last week, so that's where we're at this morning. And uh, last week we did the first 11 verses. And uh, as I was going through Hebrews chapter uh, 12, excuse me, did I say, I didn't say, did I say we went through chapter 11? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Thank you. Um, As we went through that, the first two verses, we talked about the race of faith. And uh, we talked about the great cloud of witnesses, which really refers back to chapter 11, all the saints that are mentioned in chapter 11 and the Hebrews, I like to call it the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Uh, And then we talked about laying aside all encumbrances in order to run the race. And for you and I, the race is the race of faith. And so we're to lay aside any encumbrances that would weigh us down. And then we're to run with endurance, looking to Jesus, who ran His race perfectly. And then we moved into verse 3 through 11, and talking about becoming a disciplined athlete for the race of faith. And that portion of Scripture talks about the chastening of the Lord. That's an aspect of your and my race of faith. And of course, it started out with the example of Jesus. And then we talked about what is the, what is the chastening of the Lord. And, and we, we discovered that it sometimes involves correction when we've erred, when we've sinned. Other times it involves making us wait or allowing us to endure some difficult situations. And then we talked about why does God chasten us? First and foremost, because He loves us. Just as a father loves his children and chastens his children, so God loves you and I and chastens us. Secondly, because he hasn't given up on us. What a blessing that is. God's still working in us. He hasn't, he hasn't just thrown in the towel and said, you're hopeless. He keeps working in us. So if you're being chastened by the Lord, know that he, there's still hope for you. God is still doing a work in your heart and in your life. He's training us to be fully reliant on Him for our needs. He's building faith and endurance in us. And He's producing the peaceful fruit of righteousness in us. That's the purpose for the chastening of the Lord. Which brings us to this morning. Verses 12 through 17. And last week I said, it's basically, I kind of kept the theme of, of running a race. And, and so verses 12 through 17, I, I, I kind of titled it last week when I gave you a little bit of a brief outline, How to Handle Injuries. But as I was studying this week, I thought it's, it's really more accurately how to deal with God's chastening during our race of faith. How to deal with it when God is chasing us. Chastening us, not chasing us. Uh, <laughs> Verses 18 through 19, talking about keeping the finish line in sight. And of course, that's so important. It's so easy to become discouraged in this race of faith that you and I are running. So we need to keep that finish line in sight. And then finally, in verses 25 through 29, just listening to your captain. Listening to your, your coach, the team captain. What is he saying to you? And, uh, but we're going to first start out here with verses 12 through 17, how to handle the Lord's chastening in our lives. So we're going to read that uh, beginning with verse 12. It says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. 
lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, things happen when you're running a race. Uh, when an athlete is running a race, there's things that can happen that can want the athlete or cause the athlete to want to give up. And the very first foremost thing is an injury. You're right in the middle of competition and you get hurt. Maybe you've ran off the course and you've got you've gone into some rough. You know, we're the, we're, the theme is the running a foot race. So you've ran off the course and maybe you're running over some uneven ground and you end up you know twisting your ankle or something. You're getting injured by running off course or maybe you're not running correctly. And uh, it's interesting, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to run. You could talk to people that, that do that have ran races, you know. If you're not, you have to run a certain way, uh, you know, your head up and you know, just different things you have to do. I was obviously not a runner, you can probably tell. Um, uh, and then there's times when it's really, there's, there's no fall to the athlete. Something just happens. And, uh, and so there are things that, that cause an athlete to want to give up. And these Hebrew believers that the apostle is writing to, they were wanting to give up. They had grown weary and discouraged. I mean, they were undergoing persecution, not only from the Romans, which all the Christians in that first century were, but they were also being persecuted by their own fellow Jews, the Hebrews. And they felt like giving up the race of faith and returning to works via Judaism. For you and I, Man, don't grow weary or discouraged running your race of faith, especially if you're going through a period of the Lord's chastening. So what should we do? Well, it's simple. Suck it up and shake it off. <laughs> don't you hate that when people say that to you? Ah, just suck it up or, you know, shake it off. They, they, they don't, you know, commiserate with you. They basically, you know, say, hey, you know, get up and go run. Keep going. And that's really what the, what the Lord is saying here through the apostle. Therefore, verses 12 through 13, it says, First of all, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. That strengthen the hands which hang down. The King James Version says to lift up the hands which hang down. And the word strengthen or to lift up, it literally means to set up or to make erect. You know, we can grow weary and fatigued from carrying the weight of unconfessed sins. Uh, you know, there's a one song that we, we've sung before. It's written out of, out of the Psalms where it says, you know, I, you know I'm just so weary. And I, you know, the, the heaviness of unconfessed sin is just weighing down on me. I, I, I'm paraphrasing very heavily. But, but that can cause you and I to grow weary in our race of faith. We can also grow weary from carrying the weight of those things that aren't necessarily sin, but they still weigh us down. The Apostle Paul talked about those, talked about those things that are lawful, but they don't edify. And sometimes when you and I allow things in our lives, they're, they're not necessarily an outright sin, but, but they bog us down in this race that we're to run. We can also grow weary and discouraged when we're carrying burdens ourselves, things that we should have cast upon the Lord. And yet we, we just, we're carrying them ourselves. Those things can w- cause you to want to give up. We can also want to give up or grow discouraged. Or as he says, you know, mentions feeble knees, which is really referring to becoming fearful when we face persecution. 
or we face obstacles that just seem you know, just overwhelming, we can grow fearful. We can want to give up when the Lord corrects us when we've sinned. And the word of the apostle to these believers is basically, shake it off, get up, brace or splint that injury if necessary, but keep pressing forward. We need to hear that all the time. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. You know, it's really cool for me personally. You know, I've been reading these Proverbs as we've been, you know, ahead of time so that, you know, I'm just kind of prepared so, you know, I can contribute to the conversation when we, when us guys meet every other Thursday. And it's really cool how whenever I'm going through doing a lesson, as I'm reading Proverbs alongside, it's like, boom. Wow, there's a verse right there that applies to this morning. And sure enough, Proverbs 19, verse 3 says, The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. You know, when I was a teenager, I grew up in California in in the San Francisco Bay Area, San Jose to be specific, and there's foothills all around San Jose. It's a beautiful area. And uh, I, as a teenager, I would love to go hiking in those foothills. You just take off and, you know, just, I loved it. The scenery was always great up there and just quiet, you know, away from the hustle and bustle of of the the millions of people that live (laughs) down there. So it's just nice to get away. And I would love to go for hikes up in those foothills. And I remember many times, you know, you start out on a trail and this this isn't like a park that says go this way. You're just out there, you know, walking around. And and as you're walking, you know, I I see this trail and I think, well, there's the trail. And I'd start walking on it. And before I know it, it turns out this isn't the trail. This is like a deer trail. And I don't know if you've ever been on a deer path before, but they get very narrow. And sometimes it's like, how does a deer even get on this? I mean, you're on the side of a, of a ledge or something, or you're on a real narrow, steep place. And, you, and many times I remember it's like, I'd get to a point, it's like, I can't continue on. I don't know how a deer does it, but I certainly can. I'm going to end up falling down this hill. And so what would I do? I'd have to turn around, backtrack, find my way back to the path because I'd realized I had gotten off the trail. And you know, your and my foolishness so often gets us off the path. So often it gets us off in the weeds and off the path that the Lord is, is leading us. And once you realize you're off in the weeds, don't stubbornly continue in the same direction. That's foolishness. Instead, turn around. And you know, I've, I've got this one uh, CD that uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Johnny Lang, but he he's a believer. He gave his heart to the Lord, and and he's got this one song about turning around. He says it's never too late to turn around, and it's so true. It's never too late to turn around. You know, so you turn around and find the Lord's path once more and start walking on it. Verse fourteen, he says, "Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord." You know, all athletes who participate in a competition, they're pursuing something. I mean, why else would they be in this competition? For some, like Olympic athletes, what are they pursuing? Man, they're pursuing the gold medal. Man, they're going for the gold. They're not going for the silver. They're not going for the bronze. They're going for the gold. If they get the silver, well, okay, at least I got something. But they're pursuing gold. That's the whole reason they're in it. Others are pursuing a Super Bowl ring, right? Or others, you know, a cup or this trophy or whatever. Others are pursuing the wealth or fame that comes with winning. Or all the, you know, the, uh, um, oh, where you do the advertising for the people. There's a word for that, but anyways. Say it. 
endorsements. There, because that wasn't in my notes. You know, some people are pursuing the endorsements, man. Once I get that, I'm, I'm set for life. Well, all athletes are pursuing something. Otherwise, why go through the discipline? Why go through the training? Why go through the pain, etc., of competing if there was no reason to win? Well, we as Christians running our race of faith, we're to pursue something too. And the apostle says, pursue peace with all men. Like I said, the Hebrew believers were being persecuted by Romans and fellow Hebrews. And the apostle is admonishing them, pursue peace even with their persecutors. Be at peace with all men. How is that even possible? Well, Paul in Romans twelve eighteen says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, you can't control someone's attitude towards you as much as we'd like to. We can't control their attitude towards us, but we can control our attitudes toward them. There are things, times when you, you just can't get peace with a person through your efforts. Well, as far as you can, be at peace with them. Be at peace with them in your heart. That's, that's basically how you do it. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned that we went to uh, Diamond Bluff to visit uh, Pastor Ben and his wife, Stacy. And uh, as we were standing out on this driveway right by their house, they share a driveway with a neighbor. And uh, so Pastor Ben said, yeah, he goes, uh, one day I get this letter in the mail. He says, I've got a lawsuit against me. And it was his neighbor. And apparently he had parked. Uh, once you get there, you'd understand. But there's a driveway that runs right in front of the church that's now their home. And, and, and he was parked right in the middle of it because before it was a private house, it was this church that was basically abandoned, I guess. And bikers would always spend the night and sleep in the church. And they'd use the bathroom and they'd leave a little money. I mean, that was like a resting area for bikers. And so there would always be people pulling up onto his property thinking that that was, you know, didn't know it was a private property anymore. So he's like, well, you know, I'm going to just park my car right in the middle so that they, well, apparently the neighbor didn't like that. And the neighbor never went ahead and talked to him. He said, the neighbor said a, never said a word to me. All of a sudden I get this letter from a lawyer that I'm being sued. So he called this lawyer and the guy's lawyer told Pastor Ben, said, don't even worry about it. Don't do anything about it. <laughs> it goes, just between me and you. He goes, I'm just, I'm taking this guy's money basically because he hired me to do this, but you know, don't do anything about it. So Ben didn't. Well, next thing he gets this, this neighbor starts talking to him about, uh, they, they raise dogs and, and, uh, he's got, uh, we're talking like, I don't know, an acre, half acre, something like that of property. And apparently the neighbor was really upset because his dog was peeing on one of his trees on his property. And, uh, and so he said, well, I'm going to hire a a uh, surveyor figure out those. So next thing you know, there's a surveyor there trying to map out the property. And, uh, and so Pastor Ben goes, you see the surveyor stick? And I'm like, I can't even see. It's way in the middle of this. It's way in, further away from where this guy was complaining about the dog peeing on his tree. So apparently that property line is, is that's, that tree belongs to Ben, I guess. It was short, short of it anyways. And it's funny because you said once that surveyor put that stake back there, the guy's never said anything anymore. He kind of leaves him alone. And I thought, you know, that's really cool. I said, the Lord's fighting your battles. Man, you don't have to do anything. He, he hasn't done anything about it. Basically, the Lord's fought his battle. Now, you and I, I mean, isn't that, you know, someone comes against you. Man, our flesh rises up, man. I, you know, I'm going to fight them back. 
I'm going to fight in light kind. I'm going to deal with, you know. And uh, he didn't do anything, and the Lord fought the battle for him. And so the application in that long kind of twisted story is uh, pursue peace with all men. Let the Lord fight your battles. Not only are we to pursue peace with all men, but there's one other thing the apostle tells us to pursue, and that's holiness. He says, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we know from scriptures that every man, woman, and child will someday see God. Everyone will see God. For the unrepentant and the unsaved, they're going to see him as the judge who sits upon the throne. But like what Adam Clark says in his commentary, he says, To see God in the Hebrew phrase is to enjoy him. And without holiness of heart and life, this is impossible. Holiness means sanctification. It means to be set apart from sin and set apart to the Lord. And the temptation when someone is at war with you is to respond in the flesh, to respond in like kind. And the apostle here is admonishing the Hebrews, be at peace with their persecutors and not to result to dealing with them according to the flesh. You know, we're running this race, and it's a fallen world that we're dealing with. You're dealing with people that are sinning. You know, uh, the day's not going to go out before someone either sins against you or you're going to sin against somebody else. And, and so it's an important word to you and I, pursue peace and pursue holiness. Verse 15, he says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And I think this is an important point. Remember we talked about the chastening of the Lord? It's not only corrective when we sin, but it's also sometimes the Lord's training and disciplining us by allowing us to go through hard things, by allowing us to wait in order to increase our faith, our patience, our endurance, and our reliance upon Him. And remember also, we each have an individual race of faith set before us. You know, we all... We all have the same goal, right? Our goal is to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We all have that same goal. We all have that same finish line. But the path of faith that you and I are on and the obstacles that we face in our race varies. And it's very easy for us to not pursue peace and holiness with all men, especially other believers who by God's grace are not enduring the same chastening we are. It's very easy to look at others and to compare our situations with theirs and become bitter towards them and bitter towards God. Why, Lord, why are you making me go through this, but you're not making them go through that? And it's easy to grow bitter. Well, the thing is, none of us deserve God's blessings. None of us deserve God's blessings. We all enjoy God's blessings according to God's grace. And so don't allow someone to fall short of God's grace in your estimation. You know what I'm saying? Don't allow God's grace, God to do His grace, what He does by His grace in another person's life, and rejoice with them when the Lord's blessing them. Don't grow bitter when you look at them and go, wow, why are they getting all the breaks? And man, I'm stuck here, and I'm dealing with all this. Because that's, that's where the bitterness creeps into our hearts. You know, Matthew, and I think there's a good ex- example of this. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is telling a parable of the workers in the vineyard. I don't know if you remember that story or not. But early in the morning, the owner of this vineyard hired some laborers 
to work in his vineyard. And he hired him for a denarius a day, which I guess was pretty good pay. So they agreed to work, and so they started working. Well, later on and throughout the day, he kept hiring more laborers. And even towards the end of the day, you know, like the 11th hour, he hired another group of laborers. And they worked the fields. And at the end of the day, the owner started paying his laborers, and he started with the last hired workers, the guys that had only worked maybe an hour. And he gave each of them a denarius for their time spent. And the other guys that had, I mean, they've been working all day. They're watching that going, wow, cool. I mean, they're paying him. That guy that's only been here an hour, he got a denarius. I'm going to get some big bucks, you know. I'm going to get mucho denarii. (laughs) Well, they were excited. But then when it was time for them to get paid, they too received a denarius. And they grew angry. And they complained. And the owner told them, hey, I, I didn't do you any harm. I paid you what I agreed to pay with you. you we agreed on that payment, and I, I'm paying you. And he says, isn't it my right to pay those workers what I wish? God extends grace to people in, in different situations, and, and we need to not become bitter. We need to not compare ourselves to them. Allow God to extend his grace to others. Rejoice with them when God's blessing them. So let's pursue peace with all men, recognizing and rejoicing with them God's grace extended to them as it has been extended to us. And then he says, And let's pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Which brings us to verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Again, you guys know the story. Esau, he comes in from the field. He's been working, you know, he's been out in the field all this day, and, and he's famished. And his brother Jacob, who liked to hang out at the tents, was into cooking and stuff, watch all the cooking shows. He's experimenting with this, this, this mess of pottage. <laughs> Check it out. And, uh, and so Esau comes in and he smells it. And he's like, man, I'm so hungry. And uh, he goes, give me some of that food. And Jacob says, hey, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You trade me your birthright, I'll give you this pot of food. And he's like, what's that birthright to me? And he goes, give me the food. And he basically was so eager to satisfy the lust of the flesh that he was willing to give up his birthright. And he says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Again, you know the story. His father Isaac was about to die and wanted to bless Esau as the firstborn, even though, by the way, before they were born, God said, the younger or the older shall serve the younger. God had already said Jacob was going to be blessed, and but Esau wanted to bless, or excuse me, Isaac wanted to bless Esau. And if you're, we talked about that in uh, chapter eleven. So if you're, you know, in our Bible study through chapter eleven, we talked about that. Anyways, Esau went out to hunt some venison, and meanwhile Jacob, who was coached by Rebekah his mother, disguised himself as Esau. Made, uh, his mom made venison stew, and, and Jacob brought it to his father and tricked his father into thinking he was blessing Esau when, in fact, he was blessing Jacob. And Esau returns from the field. He prepares the venison stew that he, you know, just like his dad likes it, and he brings it to Isaac. And, and, and Isaac, when, he, when, he, when it dawns on him that he's blessed someone else, 
he shudders because he realized, man, he was trying to thwart God's will, and God's will cannot be thwarted. He wanted, and God's will was to bless Jacob. And it says that Esau wept profusely. I mean, he was, he was just hollering and bellering, begging for his father for a blessing. But Esau had despised his birthright earlier, but he still wanted the blessing. And you know, there are some Christians who despise their birthright. They want to live after the lust of the flesh. They're fornicators and profane like Esau, but they still want the Lord's blessings. And it says, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It's not that Esau couldn't find forgiveness. Forgiveness is always available. Whenever you buy a Bible, look for 1 John 1.9. Make sure that verse is in there. You know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is always available. It's not that forgiveness was not available for Esau. It's that he would not repent or turn away from his sin. He couldn't find a place in his heart to repent, to turn away. Yet he sought it diligently with tears. And he goes, well, how do you know that? Well, because in the very next scene, when all, this, when all the dust settled, basically, Esau swore, I'm going to murder Jacob. He wasn't a repentant person. Now he wants to murder his brother. There are a lot of people, I mean, we used to do, I know Dave's done Bible studies in the jail. I used to do Bible studies in the jail. And, you know, there's a lot of people in prison who are weeping and sorrowful for being in prison. They're, they're diligently crying and they're diligently regretting what they've done. But the question is, do they have godly sorrow that produces repentance that's turning away from sin? Or do they just have sorrow that doesn't accomplish anything? And the apostles' warning, pursue holiness and don't despise your birthright. That's a good warning for us as well. The next section of verse twelve or Hebrews 12 is don't forget the finish line. Verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, into blackness and darkness and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Again, the Hebrew believers, they were discouraged. They were ready to give up and wanting to return to Judaism. And so the apostle is reminding them of the finish line. And that is so important, running a race. He says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as... As a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You know what that's referring back to? That's when the, when the children of Israel received the law on Mount Sinai. 
That's, that's what it was like. Mount Sinai was, was covered in thick darkness and smoke. And the voice of the Lord, there was a loud trumpet blast. And the voice of the Lord was just thundering. And the earth shook. And it was just, it was a fearful sight. And the Lord God told Moses, don't let anybody even touch the mountain. Because if they touch the mountain, even a beast, stone them or kill them. Because this place is holy. And so it was a fearful time. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai was not a joyful time. It was a time of great fear. The people were so terrified of that smoke and the noise, just that, that whole experience and the command to not touch the mountain that they begged Moses to be their mediator. They're like, don't let God speak. To, let you listen to God and you tell us what God says. We, we can't handle it. They were so incredibly terrified. And it says here, Moses himself was terrified. Why? Because even he realized that God is holy and requires holiness, and he was just a mere man full of sin. And Moses trembled himself. You see, the law brings fear and judgment because it reveals our sin to us. And so starting in verse 22, he reminds him of the finish line. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You know, when my, uh, I think all, you know, all three of my sons ran cross country in high school, and uh, we would try to go to just about every cross-country meet that we could. There was a few that we didn't make to make it to. But I always remember it, that, and, and I never ran cross-country, so it was kind of a new experience. But, you know, the parents kind of, you know, your, your kids start out, you, you're kind of cheering them on, and then you kind of kind of scramble to try to get to different spots on the, on the course so that as they're running by, you can, you can greet them or cheer them or whatever and, you know, just encourage them. And then as they're approaching the finish line, a lot of people will try to get to the finish line. And, and with cross country, it's kind of like this. They end up with, in a chute so that they can kind of time each person coming through. Um, but what I always noticed, there's such good teamwork with those teams that, you know, the first guys that would cross the finish line once they got their breath, you know, after they finished puking or whatever they had to do, you know, they, they, would, they would come around to the side and they would cheer the other runners that were coming across that line. It was such a cool thing. And there's parents. And there's, can you imagine, and you guys that run cross country probably can tell, can explain it better, but that feeling of coming to that finish line. I mean, you've, you've been running, you know, my, my, I think all of my sons used to say, you know, you don't know that, you realize you haven't ran enough until you feel like you're going to puke or you do puke. Then you know you've, you've given it all, you know. And uh, you've given it all. I mean, you've just poured out every ounce of energy and you're coming to that finish line and there's those people encouraging you, keep going, keep going, you're almost there. What an encouragement that would be. You know, my dad went to be home with the Lord in uh, 2010, so it's been five years now. And uh, I really believe firm, firmly that I'm going to see him standing at the finish line when I cross, cross over, when I finish my race. And, I, you know, and, I, and I, I don't necessarily base this on any, this isn't gospel, this isn't like this weird theology, but this is what I believe. I believe for believers in heaven, there's no concept of time. Space and time, I don't think, exists in heaven. We, we experience it, but they don't in, in, in heaven. And I imagine when my dad breathed his last breath, in the twinkling of an eye, he was standing in the presence of the Lord 
with all the other saints and angels standing around the throne of Jesus. And I think, okay, that was 2010. It's already 2015. How long am I going to live before I cross that line, before I enter into glory? Well, this is what I think. I think that those that have, that have entered into heaven, they're not like, well, it's been five years, and you know nobody's come from my family yet. And you know, I, I don't think they have any concept of time. I think they're there in a moment of the eye. They're before the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Boom, they're right there in the presence of the Lord. They're rejoicing with all the hosts of heaven. Everybody's rejoicing there. And then within the next twinkling of an eye, there comes all the rest of us. Because they, for us... You know, it's the story of Narnia. You guys ever read the book of Narnia? You know, those guys, they go into Narnia, and they've, they spend almost like a lifetime over in Narnia. They come back into this world, and it's like nothing, no time elapsed. You know, it's like, boom, they're there. I think it's just the opposite when it comes to heaven. You know, we experience all this time, all this stuff, but for them, boom, it's just like a moment in time, a twinkling of an eye. And so I imagine, again, I'm not saying this is my some big theology or anything, but I imagine that... My father just passed that finish line, and he turns around, and there comes the rest of his loved ones. There comes the rest of us falling right in after each other, and they're there encouraging each of us. And I think this is what the apostle is trying to encourage these believers. Don't give up. Keep that finish line in sight because it's, it's close. It's so close for each one of us. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You remember the blood of Abel. He was killed by his brother and by his brother Cain, and his blood cried out from the ground. And what did it cry out? It cried out for judgment and for justice. You see, these Hebrews, they wanted to give up the race of faith and returned to the legalism of Judaism, but they wanted to return to the law. But you see, the law, it's not a joyful thing. It's a reminder of sin. The law cries out for judgment. The law was given, the Bible says, to reveal our sinfulness. The law was given to reveal that God's holy and that we're sinners and we're unable to keep the righteous requirements of the law. The law brings fear and judgment. Why would you want to return to that? And boy, I tell you, I, I, I've known some believers that have returned to Judaism. And it's like, why? Why would you go back to that when we've been saved by grace through faith? Why would you go back to that? And, yet, and so that's what he, I think he's trying to tell them. The blood of Jesus, you know, it also cries out like the blood of Abel cried out. But while the blood of Abel cried out for judgment, the blood of Jesus cries out mercy and forgiveness. So why would you want to leave that for judgment? And finally, the last section, listening to your captain, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. 
Now this yet once more indicates the removal of things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. You know, I think for each one of us believers, it's not an issue of us hearing the Lord. It's not that we, we can't hear the Lord. It's that we're not listening, we're not responding, we're not, we're, not, uh, we're not obeying Him, we're not responding in obedience. It's an issue of rejecting His words to us. This passage is quoted from Haggai chapter 2. Haggai was a post-exile prophet. When the children of Israel, you know, they were in Babylon for 70 years. And Haggai was raised up, first of all, to rebuke the children of Israel, but then to encourage them in rebuilding of the temple. Because the temple had been destroyed. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. And for 70 years, Jerusalem lay in ruins. And so Haggai was called to encourage Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple. And, uh, well, they rebuilt the temple after their 70-year exile. And the Bible says the young people, man, they rejoiced. Man, we're back in the land. We've got the temple and everything. But the old people who had remembered Solomon's temple, they had been alive through that whole 70-year thing. They were weeping because they remembered the earlier glory. And the word that is rubable from Haggai was not to become discouraged, but build the temple because the Lord was with them. And then he prophesies this in Haggai 2, verse 6. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more it is a little while I shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He was pointing them to the coming of Jesus Christ, His millennial reign in the, in, in, on earth. And presumably, he's referring to the great earthquake that's described in Revelation 6 and Revelation 16 that's going to occur during the tribulation. And during that time, all things are going to be shaken in this coming judgment period. Man, if you've ever been in an earthquake, and I've been in several of them, you know, it's, it's a very unnerving, unnerving feeling. You know, if you've been on a boat, you know, the, you know, everything's unsteady. You get on, it's like you get on dry land. It's like, I'm on terra firma. But when you're in an earthquake and the ground starts moving like water, it's like there's nothing solid. There's nothing firm. Well, that's what God's going to do to mankind. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken. Well, there's some things that cannot be shaken and God, uh, that are going to remain. Verse 28, he's one of them, says God's kingdom, right? We're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Isaiah 51, verse 6, talks about our salvation. It says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Jesus, when he was speaking in Matthew 24, verse 35, said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means by no means pass away. God's Christ's words won't be shaken. That will remain. And finally, those who do God's will, 1 John 2, 17, says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 
those are the things that are going to remain. Everything else is going to be shaken. It's going to be destroyed. Everything else is going to, it's going to burn. The world is passing away in the lust of it. There are things in your and my life that God's going to shake. Not because He's angry with you. Not because He wants to harm you. He wants to shake everything in your and my life so that we might learn to lean on Him, to trust in Him, to put our focus on Him. And so He's going to shake all those things that keep us from leaning on Him, that keep us from trusting in Him, that keep us from focusing our hearts on Him. He says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, verse 28, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 29 is taken from Deuteronomy 4.24. It says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You know, God's attributes have not changed from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. God is still the same. He's the same yesterday, same today, same forever. He's the same under the Old Covenant of the laws. He's under the New Covenant of grace. And so we need to serve Him in reverence and fear because God is holy. He is a consuming fire. You know, the interesting thing about fire, it consumes combustible material. It'll, anything that can burn will burn in fire. And God's going to fire, His fire is going to burn away all wickedness and sin. The Bible even talks about it as chaff. Those things are just going to burn away. But fire also hardens and tempers metal. It all depends on what the material is that's in the fire. If you're a child of God this morning, He's going to use fire to burn away all the chaff, anything that's not of Him and for Him in our lives. But that fire is not only to burn away, the purpose is also to purify and to strengthen us. That's why God allows us to go through the things He allows us to go through. And so if the Lord's speaking to you this morning about things that He just wants you to set aside, to lay aside, or things that He's, he's like, don't put your focus on this. Don't trust in these things. Take your eyes off these things. My encouragement to you this morning is listen to your captain. Don't resist him who is speaking this morning. Don't resist the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the Word of God this morning. Because it's not an issue that he doesn't speak to us. It's an issue that we don't listen. We don't respond in obedience. And so this morning, and Luke, I want to have you go ahead and come on up. Luke's going to lead us in a, in a song. And uh, like he said with that last song we sang at the end of worship, um, I pray that you make this song a, a, a prayer, and it's it's a new song, so you may not know the words. In fact, you probably don't know the words to it. But I want you to encourage you, as Luke is sharing this song and as, as you're reflecting on it, this is a good time for us to just to come to the Lord. And, you know, if the Lord is speaking to your heart about something that He wants you to deal with this morning, maybe you've been bitter this morning. Maybe, maybe you've just been so discouraged and you want to give up, don't give up. Maybe you've been looking at other people and wondering why they're getting all the breaks and you're not. You know, God's extending grace in their lives, but He also is extending grace in yours. None of us deserve God's blessings. It's all God's grace. And so those things that, that are weighing us down, those things that are causing us to be discouraged, let's take them to the Lord this morning. Maybe there's sin we need to confess to Him. 
Or maybe there's things that are not necessarily sin, but there's things that we've just kind of hung on to in our hearts that are, that are weighing us down. Maybe you have a burden that you're carrying that you really shouldn't be carrying. You should have given it to the Lord a long time ago. And you know, it's a funny thing. Sometimes we, we pray and we, we cast our cares upon Him, our burdens upon Him because He loves us. But sometimes we kind of pick it back up, don't we? We, we, take it, we, we don't leave it at the cross. So many times we, we pick it back up and we hang on to it again. And it weighs us down in our race. It, it's, it, it's a weight. It's a burden. Well, this morning, let's cast it all back to the Lord. Let's give it to Him because He loves us. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. And why don't we stand up and pray, too? Not to the terrible mountain have I come Not through tempest and dark, fire and hunger But to Mount Zion seek your face The goal of my faith the throne of grace to finish the race. God, I come before you now. It's in my heart as a burning fire. Please burn away what weighs me down. That your grace would shine brighter. Burn
Till the day I see. 